Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I am well. I am glad to be talking about movies with friends. Talking about movies. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings an experiment or a cause to rally around? Uh, that is the question this morning after the star of Shang-Chi, Simu Liu, fired back at Bob Chapek on social media this week following the Disney chief statement that the release of Shang-Chi is going to be an interesting experiment and release strategies, unlike Jungle Cruise or Black Widow. Uh, it's going to be released in theaters alone. No premiere access to here. Uh, This is because of concerns over COVID increasing. And everyone is very curious to see if that helps it do better domestically at the box office in Black Widow uh, or worse. The prospect of being able to take a Marvel title to the streaming service after going theatrical at 45 days will be yet another data point to inform our actions going forward on our titles, Chapik said. Um, And that is where the interesting experiment line comes from. Lou is outraged by this disrespect. Quote, we are not an experiment, end quote, he tweeted, uh, quote, we are the underdog, the underestimated. We are the ceiling breakers. We are the celebration of culture and joy that persevere after an embattled year. We are the surprise. I'm fired the F star star K up to make history on September 3rd. Join us, all caps, end quote on that join, join us. Um, allow me to suggest that I am somewhat skeptical of the authenticity of this back and forth. Uh, I do not think the no-name star of a new franchise is going to go to war publicly with the studio chief without the studio chief being totally on board with it. Uh, I instead think this is a rather transparent effort to game the domestic box office by turning Shang-Chi into a cause. Uh, look, here is the the fact. It is the first mega-budgeted comic book movie with an Asian star, assuming we're going to set aside Keanu Reeves' work in Constantine. Um, other than, you know, quote-unquote, uh, I'm sorry, other quote-unquote ceiling-breaking titles uh, have overperformed domestically. It's actually pretty interesting when you compare it, what uh, movies like Black Panther and Wonder Woman have done compared to the standard domestic international breakdown when you look at the box office. Uh, Black Panther grossed over $700 million uh, domestically, and Wonder Woman grossed $412 million. And those figures were both uh, more than 50% of the total gross. It was about even split with the international gross. Similar films tend to do about one-third of their business in the U.S. and Canada, and two-thirds overseas, meaning that both films overperformed at home by nine-figure uh, uh, numbers. I mean, just an enormous amount of money. Shang-Chi is going to need all the help it can get, given the fact that we are in the midst of a resurgent COVID threat. The film has yet to receive a rele- uh, release date in China, and it is lacking stars from previous MCU pictures. Uh, but maybe, Peter, I am being too cynical here. Am I? Or is this a bit of game gamesmanship on the behalf of Disney? I honestly don't know. I So, I mean, if, you're, if your question here is just... Did they coordinate this intentionally? I would say that on the one hand, it seems quite unlikely that the star of a major, major Disney franchise, a star who absolutely has to have an ironclad, super tight contractual agreement not to disparage Disney, the company, the movie, Marvel, anything that Disney has ever said, anything that any Disney executive has ever said. I mean, this is this... This looks like the kinds of thing that if they wanted to pursue uh, a non-disparagement suit, they could. Um, on the other hand, maybe 
Maybe in this weird era of stars getting all haughty and saying, Disney, give me my money. Like is Scarlett that, Johansson. I think that's is what that they... Scarlett Johansson? Yeah, is that what she sounds like? Uh, okay. That is in my head. Good, good to know. No, I mean, that's... look, maybe, maybe um, there, you know, and also, there's all, maybe in this weird era of stars basically saying, look, you need us, which in some ways Marvel does and in some ways Marvel doesn't. Um, and also uh, the kind of the... the box office desperation that has taken hold uh, with with COVID. Maybe this is genuinely something where he just said, you know what? Screw it. I am not going to be worried. I'm not going to worry about uh, whether they're going to come after me with a non-disparagement suit because the movie's already made. I'm going to get my money, uh, right? I've already got my upfront payments. And in fact, if any, like, I'm just going to, I'm going to freelance this. I, I'm not saying I think that is guaranteed or anything i just but i do think it's possible i think it is at least it's it's a possibility here that the most cynical explanation does not apply i do think though that uh if you if you look at the way that he is uh framing this he at least is trying to turn this into a cause and certainly there have been discussions like you just can't imagine that this movie got made got marketed got developed without marvel disney and all of the principals having discussions about making this movie a cause in the same way that Black Panther was, in the same way that Wonder Woman was, and also in the same way that Captain Marvel was. Captain Marvel uh, was very much sort of sold as being Marvel's first female superhero uh, and did pretty well, um, right? I mean, there was yeah. about $425 billion uh, yeah. domestic and another $700 billion international. And Million. so Marvel has taken this as a strategy and yep. I think probably wants to pursue it. Whether or not this is something that, you know, Chapek himself explicitly coordinated, I don't know. Um, it might be, you know, something sort of in between. It might be something like where Chapek said this and then the star back channeled to him. Look, I think that's not, I don't like that you're calling us an experiment. And Chapek mm. just said, look, you know what? You don't like that. I get it. Put that on Twitter. Let's see if we can uh, make this work for us. Uh, Alyssa, I mean, I, I slightly different variation on this question. Do you think this, this is the right move to turn it into a cause and a uh, a from a business perspective, trying to trying to get people on board as a a means of signaling, you know, their commitment to uh, you know the the equality or whatever. Yeah, maybe, but part of the reason that it's hard for me to see this as a coordinated campaign is that it makes Lou look really touchy and hair trigger given how obviously out of context uh, the initial line is, right? I mean, it's the kind of thing that doesn't survive even the slightest amount of scrutiny given how clearly Chabik was talking about the specifics of the release models, not about in any sense Disney and, you know, Marvel having an Asian American lead or an Asian lead here. Um, And it... I guess I'm, and I'm struggling with the idea of making this a cause in part because, I mean, maybe it's a strategy that they have available to them to make people excited about this character and this movie. But as far as I understand, there's not like a strong constituency for Shang-Chi in the same way that there was for Black Panther and Wonder Woman. And, And also just frankly... For the most part, these campaigns have sort of been about, I mean, Black Panther is very much about sort of uplift. It has a lot to do, I think, with, you know, Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan, who you had as 
charismatic figures who people were already attached to and trusted to be handling a really iconic character. Wonder Woman, in the same way, you know, is a character that people had a lot of advanced attachment to and felt an investment in seeing her succeed, right? I mean, there's a reason that Wonder Woman is on the cover of the first issue of Ms. Magazine ever published. You know, people have had an attachment to her as a character for, you know, 60 years. Um, but they're just, you know, I don't know if there's that much buzz about this movie. I'm actually reading um, a galley of Douglas Wolk's new book, um, All the Marvels, All of the Marvels, about reading the entire, like, run of Marvel comics. And there's a section on Master of Kung Fu, the comic that Shang-Chi is drawn from, that is, you know, is very interesting and made me curious to read some of the comics, but also made clear how much the character was kind of part of a fad that kind of disappeared from the public imagination. And so maybe you go the cause strategy because it's what you have to get people fired up about a movie in the middle of a resurgent pandemic. But to me, it doesn't seem like the ingredients are there for a cause campaign, simply given the lack of previous investment in the character and the sort of flimsiness of the pretext. Well, I, what, I, 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 do you think that there's not a crazy rich Asians effect here that could also be kind of relied upon or or leaned upon to, uh, you know, again to say, hey, look, we've got we've got this movie and it's rep, it's got representation in it. People got to come out and support it. If we don't do that, then it's you know the, these are going to go away. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, um, at the same time, I mean, I think that. We're also in a moment when those campaigns have become kind of challenging, right? I mean, you know, I I think the novels that Crazy Rich Asians um, was based on are much more compelling than the movie, which did, you know, pretty well domestically. Um, I don't actually remember the international box office figures, but it wasn't, you know, necessarily a huge smash. And that, you know, with Asians and Asian Americans those campaigns run into a problem in that those communities are even bigger and more fractious and diverse than the Hispanic and Latino community in the United States. Um, And so it's hard to claim that Crazy Rich Asians, which is about a group of, a narrow, mysterious group of rich, straight Chinese families, is somehow representative of Asians more broadly. Um, And I think that, you know, something like Shang-Chi, like Snake Eyes, runs into the fact that there is ambiguity about uh, the use of martial arts movies in the West, specifically in the United States. It's like a stand-in for all of Asian culture. And so maybe there is some of that effect there, but at the same time, it's it's a trickier case to make in certain ways. Um, so I, I yeah. would actually just say that you know one way you can look at all of this, uh, all of these things is as a kind of cynical, you know, sort of uh, let's make this movie a cause based on you know just sort of very shallow representation issues. At the same time, I think you can also look at comic books. Um, just historically, going back decades, as a forum for people to sort of see themselves, um, right? As a, as a medium that, that at its best reflects back its readers. And so in many cases, right, it's sort of historically like that has mostly been kind of 
nerdy white dudes because that's who made the comics and that's who read them. And, you know, it's prototypical uh, comic book hero is is like Peter Parker, right, as Spider-Man. Um, this is especially true in Marvel where the Marvel comics are sort of more about down-to-earth people, uh, at least in their uh, you know, human uh, guises, who have more human problems. But even like, you know, Bruce Wayne is kind of a, the fantasy of like a nerdy white dude, right, in the, in the 1950s or 60s. But if you if you read, there's a a fantastic interview that got flagged a couple of years ago on Twitter and got written up. Um, it's an interview from 1990 in the Comics Journal, which is like the sort of quasi, not quite academic, but like very serious uh, publication about the, the the comic book industry. I mean, it's an interview with Jack Kirby talking about his legacy and his career. Jack Kirby, for those who don't know, is just one of the most important comic book artists and creators in all of comic book history. Um, and he was asked a very simple question. Again, this is in 1990, and I'm going to read a quote from him that includes language that is not perfectly PC for today, although not, I would say, offensive language. Uh, but uh-huh. he was just asked, how did you come up with Black Panther? And he says, I came up with Black Panther because I realized I had no blacks in my strip. I'd never drawn a black. I needed a black. I suddenly discovered that I had a lot of black readers. My first friend was a black, and here I was ignoring them because I was associating with everybody else. It suddenly dawned on me, believe me, it was for human reasons. I suddenly discovered that nobody was doing blacks, and here I am a leading cartoonist. I wasn't doing a black. I was the first one to do an Asian. Then I began to realize there were a whole range of human differences. Remember, in my day, and he's saying this from, you know, he's talking about his career in the 60s. This is 1990. Remember, remember in my day, drawing an Asian was drawing Fu Manchu. That's the only Asian they knew, uh, right? Asians were always portrayed as wily. And so there's just this sort of thing that happens in comic books that is that is not purely cynical. Sure, there's a business yeah. aspect to it, right? He's saying, look, we targeted those people. On the other hand, we targeted them by, by showing them that they could Im- that they could be seen, right? They could see themselves in comics just like all the nerdy white guys who saw themselves in Peter Parker could see themselves in comics. Well, and to bring this background to Shang-Chi, one of the really interesting things about Wolf's book is that he looks at the letters section um, in the Shang-Chi books in which the creators and one particularly prolific letter writer spent a lot of time arguing about the um, the skin tones that Marvel was using for the characters. Um, and the creators for a while sort of defended the decisions to um, make the Asian American characters either sort of luridly yellow or orange on the ground that it was sort of the only um, nuance available to them to signal the difference between Asian and white guys and eventually started talking about how the literally the inks available to them were getting more nuanced and, you know, sort of talking with the inkers. And there was this really vibrant discourse between the Shang-Chi creators and writers and the readers. Um, And Wolk actually tracks down this prolific letter writer and talks to him about that tension between you know, being really excited to potentially see yourself in comics and to feel frustrated by the execution, by someone else telling your story, um, and about that sense of sort of dialogue and tension. Um, the book is good. People who are interested in the history of Marvel should definitely read it when it comes out in October. Um, but it's particularly relevant here and to sort of that point that you're making. One of my yeah. very favorite uh, nonsense social science studies, and I, I don't want to be clear, this is it's kind of nonsense in the way that a lot of like we took six sophomores and just studied them. Uh, social science is, uh, but there's a there's a study that shows that kids uh, make better decisions and are better behaved when you dress them as Batman, <laughs> and and you know what. 
This is because normal people are not like just don't just like completely invent their own personas out of whole cloth. They're not just sort of like, I am totally original and unique. What people need are models in life, right? And models of good behavior. And you know what? In a lot of ways, Batman is kind of a model of good behavior, all of the like punching psychopathy aside. But like what he does is he makes, he's somebody who says, no, I'm going to do the hard thing because it's the right thing. And I'm going to stick it out even when it's difficult. But are they more, and that's, but I, are they more likely to try to assassinate <laughs> Superman? I, look, I, you know, I don't think that was in the study. And again, it's probably like six What happens if you dress him up like the Joker? <laughs> uh, I, again, this is a uh, further research that's that's in that Peter, section. This don't you can't bring up a study like this <laughs> and not come prepared with answers to follow up questions. I just I, I'm sorry. I, I think it's actually true that people need models in life, but I think it's also true that comic books often serve as those like sort of models of what is good and heroic and and uh, you know an essentially decent behavior. And a lot of what we do with comic books and comic book movies and superhero culture and Hollywood and you know sort of even pre superhero takeover is that we are providing people kind of models for like exaggerated larger than life models for living. And so people take after their favorite heroes. Um, and, you know, sure. Uh, has Marvel, has has uh, Warner Brothers absolutely just kind of cynically plied like, oh, here's the first female superhero. Come watch us, ladies. Absolutely, that has happened. At the same time, it's also just just part of how comic books and part of how superheroes and part of how is uh, mass accessible pop entertainment works that they are that they're creating models of you know of, uh, I'm going to keep using that word but sort of like ways of thinking about what is what is good and what is a what it means to have a good character and one way to do that is to show people that th they can be part of this world um, you know not just an observer from the outside. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that the star of Shang-Chi is calling out the head of Disney? Alyssa? Oh, it's a controversy just because the whole thing is so dumb. Peter? I think it's a controversy and it's a complete, but it's like a completely fake one. Yeah, I feel like it's a manufactured controversy. Yeah. I really, I really, I, I feel very comfortable in this, in my, my suggestion that this is nothing more than a cynical play to try and like, I don't know, grab reader attention. We'll see. Uh, if you enjoy the show and who does not, it's great. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com or we'll have, uh, uh, we're going to have a bit of a, a little, little more downbeat episode, I think, maybe coming up uh, on Vietnam films uh, and the way the, the nation's filmmakers and moviegoers uh, kind of cope with national trauma through the medium of movies. Um, and now on to the main event, Free Guy. Free Guy stars Ryan Reynolds as Guy, an NPC that is non-player character, in a battle royale style game uh, along the lines of a fortnight. Every day he wakes up, he goes to work at the bank, and he gets held up by the so-called sunglass people. The sunglass people, turns out, are you and I. We're the gamers, the, the people who show up in his world and start blowing things up and call, causing all manner of mayhem. Um, when Guy gains sentience after seeing Molotov Girl, a.k.a. Millie, uh, in the real world, played here by Jodie Comer, he sets about to improve his lot in life and the world of the people around him, leveling up by doing good deeds like stopping hijackings or saving people from getting run over by runaway cars. Um, Guy and Molotov Girl are trying to find a secret level in the game that will prove Millie and her writing partner, Keys, played by Stranger Things' Joe Keery, actually provided the underlying code that makes up uh, the game. And 
uh, was stolen by the diabolical Antoine, played here by Taika Waititi. Uh, Waititi is the big bad here, and it's worth considering his motivation momentarily. He is simply a businessman who wants to improve the lot of his company by releasing endless sequels to the game in which Guy lives. Original art isn't what the masses want. It's sequels, reboots, IP, baby. That's where the money is because that's where the people are. Um, It is a not-so-subtle indictment of the current state of filmmaking and movie-going, a world in which intellectual property dominates while original entertainments are skipped altogether. Uh, And while we can argue about whether or not a Disney-friendly cameo late in the film undermines this premise somewhat, I I think it's a fairly compelling message about the nature of art in the current manner uh, in which megacorporations are profiting in the short term while ignoring long-term, the long-term health of the medium and the the companies that they run. Um, Mostly, though, Free Guy is an action rom-com. It is the, it is just, it's a comedy that is romantic and and has a bunch of action. Uh, And the extent to which it works kind of depends on how charming you find Ryan Reynolds and Jodie Comer. I, for one, love Ryan Reynolds and Jodie Comer. I love them both. They're great. Uh, His specific brand of naive smarm has always entertained me. Uh, And I, I think she has like just the sort of crazy edge that kind of offsets his uh, sometimes saccharine sweetness. Alyssa, what did you make of Free Guy? I think you're right to zero in on the extent to which this is sort of a defense of franchise making, not necessarily in that the movie agrees with uh, Waititi's character's vision of all of this, but it's an argument that the movies make periodically that actually you can be free and creative within the context of a franchise, right? It's it's sort of a more limited version of the argument that the Lego movie makes better, that you, yes, you can take a set of constraints that's been provided for you by a corporation, i.e. the, you know, the Legos that come in a box. And you can play along exactly with the instructions, um, exactly within the parameters that the corporation is suggesting to you, or you can build something wild and adventuresome and different. Um, you know, in the case of Free Guy, it's, you know, the, this non-playable character can start acting autonomously and shake up the rules of the game and tell a different kind of story and live a different kind of life. And I understand why these stories are attractive to the entertainment industry because they are essentially an inoculation against the main criticism of what's now the main mode of storytelling, that you know, franchises are deadening and limited and nothing really interesting ever happens in them. They reset all the time. They tell the same story. And I get why big companies want you to believe that, right? There's a reason that, you know, Disney is, you know, signing up people like Dustin Daniel Gretton, who's directing Shang-Chi, Chloe Zhao, who's directing The Eternals, you know, all of these sort of indie directors. They want you to believe that something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe can both be sort of predictable and safe and popular and a home for real artists to do exciting things. The problem is if you look at any of the work product that is coming out of an e-major franchise, they never say anything predictably, you know, particularly daring or unusual or do anything, you know, really cinematically daring, right? There's a reason that, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the you know, DC movies are, you know, so significantly directed by their second unit directors who handle all of the action scenes. Um, you know, even something like Suicide Squad, which we discussed last week, you know, ultimately 
you know, it's not actually like a bold or daring thing anymore to say, like, oh, yeah, the U.S. does some bad stuff in countries in Latin America and the Caribbean because, hey, they can get away with it. CIA is no good. Yada, yada. I mean, that's just sort of everyone knows that at this point. Like, the CIA does bad stuff. And so, again, like, I, I understand the appeal of this kind of story, but I'm also sort of wary of falling for its charms because I see so obviously the future that, Hollywood is trying to sell us where everything is safe and predictable. We shell out for it in a predictable way. And yet we've convinced ourselves that we're seeing something exciting and revolutionary and worth arguing about and paying money for um, rinse and repeat. And I'm not into that future. I'm not interested in it. I mean, I, I, I think speaking of cynical, I think that's a slightly uh, overly cynical take on this movie, which I think is like about, uh, I think I took to be more about uh, the deadening nature of franchises, period. Not not necessarily trying to work within them and improve them and, you know, make, make them better, but to just say, like, hey, when we have a world that's nothing but, you know, uh, free city one, two, three, four, you know, that is not necessarily... Uh, you know, good or entertaining or, you know, good for the good for the medium, frankly. It's, you know, it's it's bad. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about this in a slightly larger context, too. One thing I would also say that I found really interesting about this is the, the level of contempt for gamers that a lot of the movie has. With the exception of Million Keys, every single person we see actually playing a video game is like a kid pretending to be an adult, um, often a sort of socially maladjusted one trying to be cooler than they are. Um, I mean, this is sort of within the context of the game. There are a bunch of appearances by sort of extant popular streamers, but there is this weird edge of like everyone we see playing a character in the game is like much less cool and sort of cringier than they seem um, in the game itself. Um, and it's just, it's an odd little edge to to a movie that very much seems like it is trying to appeal to people who play video games in part because they are, you know, that's where young people are spending increasing amounts of their entertainment devoted time. And so why you'd want to make a movie that's sort of intended to appeal to gamers by, you know, pulling in you know, people like Ninja, streamers like Ninja, and yet you're still like, yeah, you're probably some weird dork in your mom's basement. Um, it's just an odd, it was an odd note that kind of stood out to me. I mean, the game hmm. that uh, Jodie Comer and um, uh, her her uh, dude partner developed, Keys, Keys, is an anti-video game and positioned explicitly as such, right? Yeah. It is, it's a stupid, non-violent waterfall video game where nobody does anything and you just watch stuff happen. It's literally not a game at all because the someone, whole someone hates art point of video games is that you play them not that you watch them and there is this just incredibly like irritating self-justifying line by you know the uh, the uh, programmer who is like bad for part of the movie and then kind of you know conveniently just sort of switches to being basically good at the very end because whatever reasons nobody has actually any character motivation at all in this movie and he just says who would have thought that so many people would want to watch video game characters instead of shoot at them it's just it's so smugly self-justifying for the movie's purposes. Yep. And also just sort of seems to like actually kind of think that gaming is stupid and 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 deeply unpleasant and populated mostly by like you know nerdy recluses. Sociopaths. Um and like 
you know, if you want to make a movie about how gaming is terrible, make that movie, but don't dress it up in what sort of pretends to be a celebration of the same thing. And similarly, if you want to make a movie about how sequels and IP are ruining Hollywood, don't make a movie that in its climactic moments re- like relies on a bunch of very shallow, ultimately meaningless IP reveals. Uh, and that's that's it. Like this movie is this movie is you want to talk about cynical. Like I don't know about the Shang-Chi thing, right? Uh, maybe it's cynical, maybe it's earnest, probably some combination there. This is an incredibly cynical movie. And I will admit it's kind of cute. There are some jokes that land. There is there is a, enough kind of layered formal cleverness, you know, especially hidden in the background, right? Oh, look, there's the glitchy character, the guy who's always, you know, trying to run up the walls, the carry the person who's just standing on the sidewalk doing random weird jumps in the background. It's it's clever enough at times, but it feels so, so calculated and so empty and so heartless. And I guess I just sort of felt like there was what I wanted from this movie is I wanted it to be a Pixar film because there's just enough to this concept that I think it could actually work as a movie. But ultimately, it's it's really empty and it's kind of mean spirited and it doesn't have anything to say any about anything in the world. And the characters are just total blanks who I didn't care about at all. I mean, literally the whole thing about Ryan Reynolds's character is he's playing a PG 13 version of Ryan Reynolds from Deadpool. And his distinguishing traits are he wears a blue shirt and likes ice cream. Could you tell anything about this character? Like about what they're like, about what their, their specific lives. Like, yes, I understand he's an AI who doesn't have all of those specific, Specific, certainly yeah, at the he beginning. Specifically does not have, that's like the whole point of the characters, that he doesn't but have those co- things. He's, yeah, trying, right. to, so he's that's, trying to that's, create a world where he can have Sure, them. and it's pretty hard to to root for a character or care about them when that's all they are and they don't ever become anything more than that except, wait, I love ice cream and this girl and I could find my way to the edge of the universe just like Jim Carrey did at the end of Truman Show. And the man, the amount of borrowing from the Truman Show in this movie is just incredible. I mean, speaking of kind of cynical exploitation and ripoffs, it's, and it's, and the Truman Show is a much better movie and a much better movie about sort of our obsession with watching people who don't know that their lives have been manipulated and staged. It's just a much more interesting film uh, that takes this same concept in a lot of ways, right? That That there is this, virtual world that it, that uh, that all of us are sort of engaged with um, in a kind of exploitative way for our own amusement and entertainment. And what we're doing is we are abusing the person at the center of it, right? There is, that is the idea in The Truman Show. That's sort of the idea here, except in The Truman Show, it's a real person who has a real life and everything has been built around him to not, to make him think that his life is real, except of course it's not, it's just a simulation for our entertainment. And here, it's not a real person. I mean, sure, it's an AI that comes to figure out that it just wants to go hang out in the waterfall game. But man, the only thing we get to like hang on this character, the only reason that this character works at all is because, I mean, I agree that Ryan Reynolds is essentially a charming on-screen presence, but Ryan Reynolds off-screen, like sort of Ryan Reynolds' movie star charm is not enough to give this character any sort of heart, any sort of depth, anything that I could connect with. And you know, 
while I was watching this movie, I, I chuckled a few times. I sort of, I, I found some of the beats amusing. It is really, it's very competently done and like, and expertly structured, right? This sort of hits all the beats in a way that's like, oh yeah, somebody workshopped this screenplay. But the more I thought about this movie and the more I sort of processed it afterwards, I just really thought it was a disaster. I uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you here slightly, Peter, uh, in the sense that I did not think it was a disaster, and also so there's something to be said for movie star charm. Uh, there's something to be said for movie stars being able to carry a thing on their own. Uh, but my one my biggest critique would be I'm gonna I want to push back a little bit against the the uh the the suggestion that the use of the disney branded ip at the end of this i, I don't want to spoil it for anyone if you i don't want to spoil that great the that great moment for you it's but not the, a the, great uh, moment it it's a it's <laughs> I, it's a moment that that merely says to viewers hey you've seen some other movies too congratulations for having seen some other movies so I I uh, I interviewed the writer of this movie, one of the writers of this movie, Zach Penn, uh, this morning. Yeah, I It'll know. be on Bulwark Goes to Hollywood this week. But I wanted, but I, I brought this up to him because I like it was kind of the same way. And he said, "Look, this is what it is. Is not a a reference to or call back to these movies. It's actually kind of a critique of the way that all of these games do the same exact thing." Where, like, right now, you can do Marvel crap on Fortnite. You can, like, get a loot crate or whatever, right, that has, like, the Captain America shield, or you can buy it or whatever. And, it like, it in taken in that context, I actually kind of thought it was funny. I, I, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a clever uh, way to kind of play with those ideas of the, like, increasingly commercial and intellectually propertyized uh, nature of not just uh, movies and TV and whatever, but also video games and, like, the whole world around us, just the the kind of ways that brands and and characters we know and can name and can recognize are coming to dominate everything. I... You know, look, I'll t I take the point, but that just brings us back to a couple of things, uh, one of which is Alyssa's point about how this movie kind of doesn't like games or gamers. Um, but it also isn't in any way, I think, a deep critique of them, and it wants to have it both ways. It wants to sort of say, hey, we're appealing to you guys who like video games, and also, actually, your hobby is kind of stupid and childish, um, without really making a, a strong case either way. And also, really, are we going to say a, a, a $100 million, like, IP Easter egg hunt of a, of a, of a Hollywood blockbuster is a critique of... IP in some other medium. Like, I, I just, I don't buy it. I, I think it's mostly there uh, to send viewers a signal that I uh, like to sort of, uh, right. There's like, um, you get like uh, uh, that would you, it's like opening a loot box, right? Like at the end, you're like, Oh man, I got a, I'm not going to say what you get, but you get like that sort of like thrill. You get, thing. You get the thrill you get the of thing. recognition from getting the meaningless virtual thing. And I, I think it actually just sort of acts in the same way that a lot of video games act uh, rather than serving as a meaningful critique. All of which is to say watch Mythic Quest, which has many more interesting things to say about game monetization and the sort of difficulties of continuing to tell pure stories um, in the face of commercial pressure and other people's judgments. 
exit question for Alyssa. Is Peter a sociopath in all his gaming? Can we, is that my takeaway? Is that our takeaway from this? The anger, the anger that he shows toward the critique of the random violence in the Fortnite-style game. Feels 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 a little feels like it hit a little close you know, to home there, as Peter. The, as the you know squishy hippie dork in the shot, I'm going to declare that neither of you are sociopaths. That both of you are redeemable, and all will be well. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Gamer. Have you seen Gamer? The there's a it's a Gerard Butler uh, uh, action movie from the guys who made Crank. And it is that is a movie that hates gamers. If you wanna if you wanna see like an actual like really nasty critique of the world of gaming and like the kind of sociopathy therein. I, so I I'm I have seen enough of that movie. It's like one of those that I watched, you know, when I couldn't sleep one night. Um, but uh I wouldn't say it's a great film. It's certainly not as slick as Free Guy, but in some ways it's much more pointed and I, I think I might enjoy it more because it's a little more honest about what it is and what it's doing. Yeah. Uh, all right, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Free Guy, Alyssa? Um, it's fine. Like, tepid thumbs up. Peter? Thumbs down, though I recognize that many people who are not uh, not as cynical as I am will probably enjoy it. Uh, I give it a thumbs up. I mean, I again, I like. I don't love a ton of rom-coms, but this had enough non-rom-commy stuff in it to really win me over, namely violence and Ryan Reynolds. Those are two things I like. So uh, thumbs up for me. All right, that is it for today's show. Uh, if you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on Vietnam films. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. Uh, if you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 